our new season of the Rich Next Generation podcast. I am Grace Jeffries, and I'm thinking about my future. To help me with this, I'm speaking with successful women to get an understanding of the challenges they faced throughout their careers, how they overcame them, and what tips they for girls of my age. Today, my guest is Liz Bentley, who is Chief Executive at Royal Meteor... Oh, sorry. Meteorological... Can you help me with that? <laughs> Yeah, so it's the Royal Meteorological Society, but we often say Royal Met Society for short. So happy if you want to abbreviate it. (laughs) Well, let's just say the Royal Met Society. That's quite a tongue twister. Um, (laughs) Liz's career has been in the weather sector, having also worked at BBC Weather and at the Ministry of Defence. Liz established a public group known as the Weather Club, which looked to enhance public appreciation of weather related phenomena. She created a regular magazine called The Weather to promote appreciation and understanding of the weather to people from all walks of life too. Thanks for joining me today, Liz. Can we start by you telling us all how your career took you to the role you have today? Yeah, so I've been really fortunate to have a a variety of jobs, but all working within weather and climate, which is my kind of passion and interest. And I guess it started at the Met Office. So after leaving university, I joined the Met Office. Uh, and I, I did a number of different roles at the Met Office. I was a research scientist at the beginning. I then wanted to train to be a, a weather forecaster, so the, be at the front end delivering kind of weather services to different customers. Um, I then went off to have my first child, so I couldn't work because a lot of weather forecasting is shift work. So you have yeah. to work at night time so you can deliver a weather forecast first thing in the morning for the customer. And having young children, I couldn't do that. So I then stopped shift working and stopped being a weather forecaster. And I went to train people to do that. So I worked at the Met Office College where they train people to become weather forecasters. Uh, After that, um, the Met Office College moved down to Exeter, which is where it is at the moment. And I then decided to leave the Met Office and go and work at the BBC. And I managed the BBC Weather Centre team. So the team of broadcast meteorologists, both nationally, but also the regional team. So it's a large group of people. It's a lot of people management and managing the contract there. Um, I then went to work at the Ministry of Defence. Uh, And that was really interesting. So I looked at everything from the seabed right through the oceans, right through the atmosphere and out into space, even looking at space weather. And so my depth of knowledge around weather and climate in those kind of different mediums just expanded enormously, kind of working with a different customer. And I did that for a few years. And then I joined the Royal Meteorological Society about 13 years ago. And one of the first roles I had was this, the weather club that you mentioned in the introduction, which was like the public outreach arm. So how do we engage with the general public around weather and climate? And we launched the weather club back in 2010. Uh, And then I took over as chief executive of the Royal Meteorological Society about um, eight, eight or nine years ago. Brilliant. Well, it sounds like you've had a really interesting career and um, just quite a lot of different roles that led to where you are now. And as you said, kind of enhanced all of your knowledge that you previously had from working with the Ministry of Defence, looking at space weather, which I didn't even know there was a thing. I didn't know there was weather on Mars, but apparently there is. (laughs) Well, when you were at school, did you know what you wanted to do or be? Or did that happen later in life? Did you always have a fascination with weather and the climate when you were younger? I did, yes. So I I was fascinated with the weather. And probably my early teens, probably your age, I'm guessing, something like that. I used to, I used to, 
take weather measurements in my garden. Uh, I used to try and have a go at forecasting the weather. So you could get data and weather charts and try and guess what the weather was going to be like, what the temperature might be like. And I almost play a game, really, see if I could kind of beat what the TV weather forecaster was going for, for example. And so, yeah, a fascination and a bit of an obsession. So I grew up in Yorkshire on top of the Pennines, so quite high up in the, in the hills there. And the weather was always that bit more extreme, I think, in Yorkshire. So we get lots of snow in winter, really, you know, deep snow that you had to dig yourself out of the house mm -hmm. and horizontal rain. It was so windy. So the rain would kind of wet the front of you, but the back would be bone dry as I kind of walked to school each day. And so I think my fascination and obsession in the weather kind of was ingrained really through just that interest, wanting to kind of understand why the weather does what it does at an early age. So, yeah, a career was on the cards for me well into, you know, being at school. Well, I know that you went to both Newcastle and Manchester University, but how important do you think it actually is to go to university, especially since in the time where we are now, there's many apprenticeships and graduate schemes that many companies seem to be offering young people nowadays? Yeah, no, I, I agree, actually. There are there are different routes. And if you're thinking about meteorology, if you're into weather and climate, then there are definitely different routes to get into that. For me, university was great, and it is for lots of people. You gain knowledge, obviously, by, you know, the course that you do, but you gain other skills, kind of, um, I don't know, social skills. So you learn to be more independent and you're good at organising. And if you think about, I did a PhD at university. It's a big three-year project that you have to kind of break down into manageable chunks and keep you very much working on your own to kind of do that piece of work. That's a great life skill to have that you take into employment as well. So there's knowledge that you learn is the social skills, I think, as well. But you're right. There are lots of other different routes. So I we, we do professional accreditation in meteorology at the Royal Meteorological Society. So people can become a chartered meteorologist, for example. Some come through a degree route. Some come through what we call a more experiential route. So they they learn by doing the job and they gain the skills by doing the job. And as you say, internships is another route in as well. The one thing with the experiential route is it probably takes a little bit longer to get to those positions that you want to get to. So you find graduates tend to have a more direct route to these uh, these particular roles, but there's still options. There's lots of options out there. Well, the world is changing and so much and so quickly. Um, what do you think work for women may look like, say, in 10 years time or what do you perhaps hope it may look like? Yeah, so I, I've been working in meteorology for 30 years, quite a long time. And certainly when I started out, it was a very male dominated sector. Yeah. Uh, and even working in places like the BBC or certainly at the Ministry of Defence was very male dominated. And I've noticed very much a, a much more even diverse range of people. So if you look at people coming into meteorology now, it's probably about 50-50. might be even slightly higher females coming in than males. So it's definitely shifted in that kind of, in my kind of career lifetime. I think one of the things that's really interesting, so if we think about climate change, how our climate is changing, it impacts much more on women than it does on men. So there are many more women around the world who work on the land and, you know, need to kind of grow crops and food to, to kind of to live off the land effectively. And they're struggling more and more because of climate change. So they're struggling to grow crops. They're struggling with water, finding fresh water and so forth. So women, I think, 
the knowledge that those women have will actually help us to to adapt to climate change or to to become much more resilient to climate change. And so women are going to play much more of a role, I think, going forward in this next decade as we have to become much more resilient to climate change. And the United Nations have a group called United Nations Women purpose. You know, the purpose is to bring these these females together who are, are kind of having to experience the hardships of climate change, but using their knowledge of how they use the land to help others. So I think there's a real role for women to play in lots of different roles, but but the climate change crisis is certainly one. Definitely. Now, throughout your career, have you had any mentors or have there been anyone that you particularly admire? Uh, yes, so I've had, I've had quite a few mentors. Um, I think, as I said, when I first started out, I was surrounded predominantly by men. And so my mentors tend to be male. Um, but certainly as I've come through, so there have been roles that I've taken on where I've been the first female in that role. Um, but certainly as in this last decade, there have been more and more women who have got into more senior roles that have, have worked alongside me, are kind of inspirations to me. But I probably have to look at historical figures and there are very few female historical figures. But but one person who has been a real kind of inspiration is a lady called Eunice Foote. And Eunice Foote was born in 1839. So she was, you know, a long time ago. And, and um, but she was an American scientist and she was a women's rights campaigner. So she really fought for women to, to kind of get a career and to get an education back in the 1800s. But she was the first scientist to recognise climate change. This was back in the 1800s. Real inspiration. So she knew that sunlight, as the sun shines on greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere, we got a rise in temperature. So even back in the 1800s, as a female who, you know, struggled to get an education and to, to have her work published, she was leading on this science that we now, you know, take for granted, I guess, today. So she would be a real inspiration for me. Yeah. So um, as part of our Reach Next Generation summits, we do look at diversity and opportunity for young girls from the black and minority communities. Can you tell me a little bit about how your organisation is attracting people from these types of backgrounds? Yeah, really important to us. So uh, as as a charity, we work with across the whole sector. So we're trying to encourage other employers in the sector to attract people from different diverse groups uh, to come and work with them and that helps the whole sector develop. We personally at the Royal Meteorological Society get very actively involved with schools, kind of the next generation of meteorologists coming into uh, into the, the subject, but also about educating people so that they can make kind of informed decisions around weather and climate. And we, we try our hardest to get into, say, inner city comprehensive schools, working internationally as well with kind of le less developed countries to try and get that kind of educational message out to different audiences. It's very easy to go and work with, say, I don't know, a grammar school where there's a lot of money. Uh, you know, you might have uh, more resources to throw out um, the, the you know, teaching something in the curriculum, or you might have a teacher that's got more time to do some after school clubs. That's an easy route for us. But we try and challenge ourselves to get into the schools that probably need us more, actually, than, than say, the grammar schools. Yeah. So do you still have any personal or perhaps even professional ambitions that you wish to fulfill in the future? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So um, I guess my my motto is I want to make a difference. 
And and I can do that in lots of different ways. Partly I can do it individually so I can share my passion and interest in meteorology, uh, but I can help the next generation. And so empowering people to, you know, make their own decisions and do what they want to do in their careers and to, you know, if they want to come into meteorology, helping them on that kind of journey to do that. So I think you were saying you have your summit, which is I can do it. Uh, you know, I, I can. I'm, I'm in a position to do it, but I'd like to help others. So I'd probably change that to you can do it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so what tips would you give girls when they start to think about their careers and their futures? Yeah, so probably the first thing is 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 choose a career that you love to do. So something that you might just want to do as a hobby and that you get a paid a salary and that's the kind of that's the bonus that's the icing on the cake but you would you would probably do it for nothing because you love that job so much that that particular area that you want to get into because you have to you know, you'll get up every day and you'll go out to work and you'll do that job so you have to love it so find something that you love what you're passionate in and then make the most of every opportunity. Things will happen. Something, an opportunity will arise. I mean, like you making this podcast, you know, this is, this was an opportunity in your life and you, you grabbed it and you've run with it and you've learned so much, I'm sure, by doing this. But you've got to seize those opportunities that kind of are put in front of you. So, you know, put yourself forward, put your hand up, say, yeah, I'll have a go at that and make the most of every opportunity. I think that's brilliant advice and I'm sure all the listeners will definitely take that on as I will do too. So if you could spend an hour just chatting to three people over a coffee, I don't know if you like coffee, perhaps a tea, maybe some afternoon tea, cakes, lovely. But who do you think they would be and why? Let me just make it clear. They can be people who are no longer alive, but only three. Okay, so... I mentioned Eunice Foote earlier, mm-hmm. so an, an inspirational woman. I'd never met her, obviously, because she was born in the 1800s, but I'd love to have time to speak to her and understand, I guess, the the challenges that she had back in the 1800s in studying science, sharing her science as a female and how she kind of overcame that. I'd love to, to maybe have a conversation with her. And then probably maybe two people who have influence to make a change, particularly around climate change. So... You know, I'd be looking at leaders of, you know, the main countries. So maybe Rishi Sunak as our prime minister or Joe Biden as president of the US. But I'd want an opportunity to encourage them to take more action against climate change. Definitely. Well, I think those are some great three people, especially um, the fact that you would definitely use those conversations for good, as I think we all should do. Now. Yeah. um. What are your non-negotiables in life? What would you say that you just wouldn't compromise on in both your personal and professional life? Just something, if someone asked you to change, you would just have to say no as politely as you could because they are your non-negotiables. What would you say those are? Okay, so, um, well, I'm I'm a vegetarian and I have been since I was 15 and... You know, if someone said I had to start eating meat, then that would be something I just couldn't do. That's certainly one thing. And I guess another motto that I have is life's too short. So, you know, I I try and make the most of every day. And so I try, you know, I wouldn't want to change things so that I I, I didn't have that opportunity, that freedom of choice to, to kind of do what I'd like to do. Now, 
finally, um, you mentioned climate change earlier. What do you suggest that any of the listeners can do out there to make small changes with perhaps big differences? Yeah, this is really important, actually, Grace, because um, we often think some of the actions that we're taking are really important and have a big impact. And actually, they don't have as big an impact as, as we believe. And mm-hmm. so part of my job is to, to share that information. So let me give you a couple of examples. A typical carbon footprint of you and I in a year is around about 10 tonnes of carbon. So 10 tonnes, that's how much we would emit just doing our day-to-day lives. And in order to kind of reduce our carbon footprint, we, we have to change things that we do. Some of the biggest things that we can change are transport that we use. So stop driving cars that run on petrol and diesel. And either stop driving cars, so, you know, walk, cycle, use public transport instead, or or switch to an electric vehicle, which obviously doesn't uh, burn these fossil fuels that put the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So transport, if we can fly less, so if, you know, even just doing one uh, one less flight a year than you would do. And for many of us like myself who work in businesses, who travel for business, I, I can make those decisions quite easily. That's that's quite quite easy for me to do. And then diet is also important. It's not about giving up meat completely, but making decisions about the kind of food that you eat, where that food is sourced, how you cook that food. We waste so much food, uh, in not just here in the UK, but around the world. And the amount of um, carbon that goes into just producing that food, delivering it to the store, cooking it, and then it ends up in the dustbin. You know, it, it's such yeah. a shame. We could really, really work on that. And people think so each of those probably would reduce if we made that change, got rid of a car using the car or switched to an electric vehicle. One less flight to, say, the US and back. Uh, each year and changing your diet that would probably save you six tons of carbon each year so from 10 you could get down to four quite quickly and we all recycle we're very good at recycling but recycling only is 0.01 ton of carbon a year so it's important but it's not going to have a really big impact on our carbon footprints and again it's just educating people so that they know that so yeah a few tips there a few a few opportunities to make some changes Definitely. Well, thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you today, Liz. Thank you again. And I'm sure everyone listening will now be thinking about some of the choices they're about to make in their own lives and their own careers. Keep listening to the Research Generation podcast as I talk to many more brilliant women. And more details about us and our upcoming summits are at www.reachnextgeneration.com.